All right, we are going to be reading today in Revelation chapter 20. I'm not sure we've been in Revelation very much yet in our Living Hope series. You knew we'd eventually get there. Revelation chapter 20, uh, verses 1 to 10 is where we're going to read this morning. And I'll just get my slides Uh, If any of you have ever been involved in discussions about the end times, uh, you will find that uh, there are some very specific terms that people tend to use. Just show of hands if you've ever heard any of these terms. Um, For example, pre-trib. Anyone heard that one? Or post-trib. Or you've heard the term pre-millennial. Anyone heard that one? Or amillennial is another term we sometimes hear. And what this alerts us to is that when, when it comes to the end times, there are two major events in the end times that tend to define our view of, of the end time period and how things are going to unfold. The first one is the one we're going to look at today. It's, it's around what we call the millennium. It's a thousand-year period that we're going to read about here in Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 to 10. Uh, Some people view it in this way, some people view it in that way, we're going to talk about that, but your view of the millennium defines, in many ways, your understanding of the end times. The other major event that tends to divide believers in terms of their understanding is the rapture, Uh, and this is why we have pre-tribulation. A pre-tribulationist says the rapture happens before the tribulation period at the end of time, A post-tribulationist says it happens at the end of the tribulation when Jesus is coming back to the earth. And there's also mid-tribulation. Can you imagine where they put the the rapture? They put it in the middle of the tribulation, or they sometimes might call themselves pre-wrath. And it's all to do with their understanding of the rapture. Now, here's the first thing I want us to understand. Uh, Historically, this church, Wallenstein Bible Chapel, has held to a pre-millennial pre-tribulation view. So we've understood the millennium, as we're going to see here, uh, to to be a literal thousand-year period that's still to come in the future, and we've understood the rapture to be an event that's going to happen before the great tribulation at the end of time. Uh, Currently, not all of the elders would see those things in exactly that same way. And I just want to put you at ease to, to help you realize that It's actually something, there's something healthy about that because not every Christian who we're going to share eternity with is a pre-tribulation pre-millennialist. Not not everyone. In fact, I would venture to say that that is not the most predominant position among genuine followers of Jesus today. We don't need to be alarmed or concerned uh, that, um, that, that we have to share eternity with people who, who don't understand the scriptures in the same way. Many people would say that this passage we're going to read today is one of the most difficult and challenging to understand. Not simply to understand and what it says, but how do, you, how do you piece this together with everything else the Bible says? If you uh, know of a man named John Piper, he has a YouTube video. You can go find it on YouTube or you can find it at Desiring God. It's called An Evening of Eschatology. And he invites three different, fairly well-known theologians and pastors 
to come to his church. This is when he was still a pastor in Minneapolis. And they have this evening of eschatology, and these three guys all represent different views on the millennial kingdom and what it actually means. Now, one of the reasons he did that, he tends to be what we know as what we would call a historical premillennialist. And yet he brought these guys to his church to represent at least two other opinions, partly to represent the unity that we ought to have as believers with people who understand these things a little differently than we do. There are certain tenets of the Christian faith that we should die for, that that we should fight to the very end for, that, that Jesus is God, that Jesus is Savior, that He came and offered Himself as a substitutionary atonement, that through faith alone we can find salvation in Christ, the promise that Jesus is coming back, that there is going to be this eternal kingdom when his people will reign with him forever. There's all kinds of things like that that we can be absolutely certain on. And the reality is that people who come from these different end times camps, they all believe that. And that's why we can call them brothers and sisters, and that's why we can have unity with them even though they understand these matters differently. So I want us to keep that in mind as we consider Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 to 10. I'm going to give you my understanding of this passage, which I think is fairly representative of our our church elders at this time when it comes to the millennium. So let's read these verses together. Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 to 10. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations any more until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who'd been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and to gather them for battle. In number, they are like the sand on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. God, we open your word now with fear and trembling. Forgive us, Father, for uh, viewing your word as something that is optional in our lives. Help us, Lord, to see it as our very food. And Lord, even though today we examine a text uh, that is not necessarily understood in the same way among your people, Lord, we take it seriously. 
We ask that your spirit would give us understanding and that the application, the the attitude of our hearts that you would want us to have as we read this and study this and understand this would be the attitude that we leave with here today. So we come before you now seeking your help in Jesus' name. Amen. So what are the simple details of the millennial description that we have here? It's fairly simple, really, and if you followed through and and, uh, and thought about the things we were reading, it's, it's pretty straightforward. It doesn't seem that complicated when we just read it on the surface level. Satan is bound at the beginning of this passage. He's placed in the abyss. He's chained with a huge chain. And even on top of that, he's, he's locked into the abyss. And then there's this seal. So we got this, this there's four aspects to uh, Satan's uh, being imprisoned during this time. First, the abyss. Secondly, the chain. Thirdly, the door is locked. And then fourthly, there's this seal placed over the door to keep Satan from deceiving humanity. One of the things I want you to notice, this passage reminds me of, of Genesis, where, uh, where we have Satan, at the very beginning of time, deceiving humanity. So, so this reminds me of that, and it, it signals to me that now God is going to do something similar but different, because in this case, Satan is imprisoned. Then we find the people of God ruling and reigning on the earth with Christ. So we assume that Jesus has come back to earth, which is a theme that's all through the Bible. Sometimes we think of it as the day of the Lord. Sometimes uh, we think of it as his second coming or his appearing. It's a great promise of the Bible. So this obviously takes place after Jesus has returned to earth. And he literally physically is going to be here as king of kings and lord of lords. And his people will be with him. How do we know that? Notice verse 4, I saw thrones on which were seated those who'd been given authority to judge. Who's been given authority to judge? Well, Scripture says that Jesus has been given authority to judge. But we know of this verse that tells us that the apostles would be given authority to judge. Matthew 19, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me, he's speaking to his apostles there, will also sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, I I don't know if the apostles are the only ones that are being referred to here. We know this from 1 Corinthians 6. Paul writes to the believers in Corinth, which we can, I think, apply to all of us. He's uh, rebuking them for taking each other, brothers and sisters, taking each other to court, suing each other. He says, don't you know that the Lord's people will judge the world? Do you not know that we will judge angels. Here's a judgment that he seems to be applying to anyone who's a believer and saying that ultimately the people of God will sit in judgment, at least in this case, over angels. And then in 2 Timothy 2.12, if we endure, again speaking generally to believers, if we endure, we will reign with him. That would seem to be what's being described here in Revelation 20. And then Romans 8, we are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we also may share in his glory. 
I love it when you can look at other parts of Scripture and they're describing something that's being, that's being written in a different part of Scripture. And I think that's what we have here. Jesus is on the earth, he's ruling and reigning, and he's doing so with his people, some of whom, it says, are the ones who've been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. We would understand that, I think, to be in the tribulation period at the time of the beast or the, the antichrist and the mark of the beast. We would understand that to be part of the tribulation. Third detail. After the thousand years, Satan is released from the abyss. He gathers the nations. So again, a replay, a, 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 a reshadowing of what took place in Eden where he deceives the people. He goes out and does it again. Deceives the nations and convinces them to come to fight against Jesus and his people in the city that he loves. I assume that to be the city of Jerusalem. And then we find the nations are destroyed by fire from God and Satan is thrown into the lake of fire. So what are the three positions? The one that I understand and believe uh, somewhat tentatively is this premillennial position, which we understand to be a literal th a thousand year period between the return of Christ and final judgment. Now you might say, well, this is so plain. It seems like such clear language. Why would anyone doubt that there's a literal thousand year period? And the reason is because the book of Revelation is written in a very special kind of literary form. We call it apocalyptic literature. Doesn't that sound exciting? Apocalyptic literature. Uh, we see a little bit of this in the book of Ezekiel. It became popular actually between the Old and New Testament periods. But when you understand and, and you're familiar with apocalyptic literature from that time frame and you read the book of Revelation, you realize, oh, that's, that's apocalyptic. And apocalyptic literature is characterized by metaphor and allegory. In other words, not everything in the book of Revelation is meant to be seen as literal. And that shouldn't surprise us because there's all sorts of things in the book of Revelation that we don't take as literal, even though we are, tend to be literalists. We tend to, as premillennialists, we say, no, we need to see it as literal. But when we read a description of Jesus with a sword protruding from his mouth, do we actually believe that when we stand before Jesus, when we get to see him, that we've got to watch out for the sword? We don't actually believe that. We understand that to be metaphorical. It speaks of his authority. It speaks of his judgment that comes from his mouth, his word. And out of his true word and righteous word, he will judge the earth. Uh, we can read about locusts and all kinds of things that happen on the earth uh, in the descriptions of the tribulation that are metaphorical. There's lots of things that are. And that's why some people struggle to see this as literal. A thousand years, is it literally a thousand years? It sure reads like that to me. But that is the reason why some very godly Christians, our brothers and sisters, would tend to not believe in this premillennial position. But this is our understanding, my understanding, uh, generally, I think here at, at the church and among the elders, a literal thousand-year period between the return of Christ and final judgment. Then there is the post-millennial view. This view is not as popular as the other two. Uh, it was held by uh, a man named Jonathan Edwards. 
uh, who was an American theologian, a very influential even to our day, very godly Christian man. Uh, there's not a lot of other well-known people who hold this view, but the post-millennial view is uh, that sometime before the return of Jesus, there is a thousand-year period, or it may not actually represent a literal thousand years, but there's a period of time before Jesus returns when the church is very triumphant, uh, when the gospel permeates the earth and when the kingdom of God is seen through conversion and revival. Some post-millennials believe that that actually happened in history. So for example, if you know history and you know that the emperor Constantine uh, made Christianity the official religion of Rome uh, in the early centuries, they would say that that was the time. That's when the millennial was happening because Christianity was so widespread. Others look to the future and say that there's a time coming when the gospel is going to have such success and the church is going to be so successful in converting the world that it's going to be this time of the millennial kingdom. And they believe that Jesus will return after that. That's the post-millennial view. The problem with that is if you take this future post-millennialism that someday things are going to get better and better and the church will be triumphant, it seems to contradict what the Bible says about the end times, where Paul says in 2 Timothy, there will be terrible times in the last days. In the same chapter, evildoers and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. The scripture tells us that there's going to be this great falling away at the end of time. There's going to be this great tribulation. Now, post-tribulation or post-millennialists would say, no, no, we, we know there's going to be a tribulation right before Jesus comes, but before that is going to be this time of tremendous spiritual triumph. Uh, I, I don't see that in the Bible, but that's what some people believe. And then finally, we have this view called amillennial, the amillennial position, ah meaning not, or the opposite of. And some amillennialists, this is a hard, uh, hard words to say today, they would say, no, you shouldn't call us that because we actually believe in the millennial kingdom. We just believe that it's metaphorical. We're not denying that it's true. We're just saying that it's metaphorically true. But nevertheless, this is the famous name that they have been known for, amillennialism, not a literal uh, thousand-year reign. Most amillennialists believe that, uh, the, that the millennial kingdom that's described here in Revelation 20 is the period of time between Christ's first and second coming. Now, I've, I've heard uh, some amillennialists uh, openly admit how difficult it is to accept this possibility when we read of Satan being thrown in the abyss and chained and locked in and sealed over, and yet this apparently is the time in which that's taking place, when Satan is not active in the world, in which the gospel, and, and they, would, they would say that this is true because Christ has come. You might remember when the uh, disciples were sent out by Jesus and when they come back, they said, hey, demons were subject to us and Jesus says to them, yeah, I saw Satan fall from heaven. And so some people would say Jesus inaugurated this kingdom. In a sense, he did. What did he, what did he say when he came to preach? The kingdom of God. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. 
So uh, there, there are biblical arguments for people who want to suggest that no, the millennial kingdom began when Jesus came and we're still in this period. It's going to end when Jesus returns. What's the problem with that? The primary problem with that I've already mentioned is that we are living in a time when scripture would tell us, very clearly tell us, that Satan is active. There's, there's no evidence it would seem in the rest of scripture that Satan currently is locked up, chained up, sealed up, not working in this world. It's just not, that's not consistent with what we find in the rest of the Bible. First Peter 5.8, be alert and sober, sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. This, of course, written after Jesus had ascended. Second Corinthians, Paul says that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. Or Ephesians 6.11, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. This, this doesn't seem to be scriptures that are rightly applicable to a time in which Satan is chained. And that's why I'm not an amillennialist. But we need to remember that some of the best evangelical theologians of our time are amillennialists. Some of the men that I trust best to uphold the gospel and the, and the, the truth of scripture, and sometimes I'm surprised, but often the case is that they are amillennialists. So we don't demonize these people or assume that they're stupid or that they're not faithful to God. They love Jesus and they love his word and this is their understanding. And if they were here, they could give you a much better explanation of why they believe that view. I want to take a few minutes and ask ourselves this question. Why would there be a millennium? See, all millennialists struggle with this idea because for the most part, Scripture speaks of the coming of Jesus and then this new time, this, uh, this, this new era when there would be a new heaven and a new earth. And, and they're right. Scripture tends to point in that direction. Jesus is going to come back and then the earth is redeemed and we usher in this wonderful eternal time of, of redemption. And so, Amillennius, why would there be this thousand-year period in between? And here is, here's the way I would answer that. We don't have a biblical verse, a chapter, to tell us why there would be a millennial period. So I'm just speculating here, but here's a few reasons. Number one, a period of time when this world is as it was meant to be. We don't know how long a period of time between creation and the sin of Adam and Eve. We don't know how long that time was. But obviously, in comparison to history, it must have been quite short. There is going to be a thousand year period of time when the world is made right. It's like God is going to vindicate himself as creator. He's going to show humanity and the universe and the angelic realm that this is the beautiful and perfect world that he had intended. And there's going to be this thousand year period in which that will take place. How will that be so? Number one, the creator will be present. Just as God walked with Adam and Eve in the garden, Jesus will be there. Jesus, according to the New Testament, is the creator. And he will be there on a throne. I would believe that the curse would be removed. We read uh, in Old Testament scriptures and prophetic passages about the wolf lying down with the lamb. Uh, I would suggest that those are millennial references that would that would tell us that the curse that is on our world, sickness and, 
and, and, and death and disease and war, all of those things will be removed. And why wouldn't they be? Because the creator is going to be ruling the world. I had a conversation with another pastor recently. We got talking about politics. And of course, uh, you know, even as Christians, uh, we tend to obviously favor a capitalistic or democratic system, which we have here. And I think as Christians, we have wrongly equated democracy with some kind of higher spiritual form of government. But I would argue that what we're seeing in our time is that democracy is not the answer to the world's problems. We might favor it over communism or uh, other forms of government. What this world needs is, is, is Jesus. What this world needs is for Jesus to come back and rule in righteousness. Not as a dictator who's going to selfishly uh, harm the world for, to, to line his own pocket. Jesus would never do that. He's not going to be like these dictators in Africa who make themselves rich while their people starve in the streets. Jesus will never do that. He will be a righteous and perfect king of kings and lord of lords. That is what the world needs. That is what humanity needs. We call that a, uh, uh, not a democracy, but a theocracy or a Christocracy where Jesus will rule. It's the promise. It's a promise of scripture. In fact, it's right there in chapter 19 of Revelation. He's got this robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I believe that's what the millennial kingdom will be. An opportunity for this world to see what it would have been, what it could have been, and what it will be when the creator rules. And that's the third point is righteousness. Righteousness will rule. There will be no injustice. There will be no inequity. It will be Jesus ruling in righteousness as the scripture promises. Secondly, why a millennial kingdom? Fulfillment of biblical promises. I've mentioned already, there are many places in the book of Isaiah, uh, particularly and, and elsewhere, where we read of promises particularly made to the nation of Israel that seem to describe a return in this in this world, in this, on this earth, uh, a, a time when the promised Messiah, the promised King would sit on the throne of David, when, when God would restore blessing. And uh, we would argue that that seems to be fulfilled in the millennial kingdom. Then finally, a final testing and judgment of Satan and humanity. Speculating here, but the fact that at the end of this thousand years, when the people of the earth have seen the beauty and the glory of Christ, have seen what humanity can look like when it follows in the ways of God, when they've lived under the blessing of Christ and all of the blessing of God that he meant for creation, and still, Satan is released and he stirs up through lies and deception and convinces the world that Jesus is taking advantage of them, that Jesus doesn't really love them, that he's, he's withholding some good from them, and at that deception, they take up arms against Jesus. It would seem to me that this final war, Gog and Magog, sometimes we think of it as the war of Armageddon, is a final testing and judgment of Satan. Satan having been bound for all of these years, did he learn? Was he reformed in the abyss? No. 
And not only Satan, but humanity itself would once again demonstrate their depravity, that they would hear and believe the lie of Satan and raise their fist against Jesus and God. And folks, when that happens, the punishment and the judgment that will fall upon them will absolutely be just, won't it? So those are some of the reasons why I would assume that God would have this thousand-year period after the return of Jesus. So what? What are the the lessons that we might take from this this morning? Just going to ask that question, so what? The first point I want us to consider is this. Darkness or light? This passage would make it so clear to us that there are two sides there are two kingdoms there are two ways that we can go and this of course is taught all through scripture Jesus said there's a broad road that leads to destruction many go that way but there is a narrow road that leads to life and only a few find it or the words of Paul in Colossians 1 where he says to the believers there, giving joyful thanks to the Father who's qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. According to Scripture, our assumption is there are only two kingdoms and every human being is either in one or the other. So if you're sitting here today and you can hear me saying these words today, you you have to ask yourself and consider the question, which kingdom are you in? There is a kingdom of darkness that is under the influence and the, the lies and the deception of Satan, and there is a kingdom of light. How do we get into this kingdom of light? Notice what Paul said in these verses. The Father qualifies you to share in the kingdom of light. You can't sit here today and say, well, I'm a good person. I've been a good person all my life. When I stand before God, my good deeds will outweigh, I know I've done some things wrong, but my good deeds will outweigh my bad deeds. In other words, what you're saying is, I qualify myself for the kingdom of God. I am worthy to be part of the kingdom of God. God owes it to me to make me part of his kingdom. And of course, the scripture teaches quite the opposite. That we are all sinners. That we all fall short of the glory of God. That the wages or the payment that our sins deserve is death. Not just physical death, but eternal death. But God in his grace reaches out to rescue Those who would repent and trust Him. Those who would allow God to qualify them through Jesus, through His death, through His resurrected life, through His righteousness imputed to our hearts, we can be part of the kingdom of light. And so, the question for you this morning, for all of us, is are you in that kingdom? The outcome for the kingdom of darkness is bleak. There is no hope apart from Jesus. If you're not in the kingdom of light, your 
future looks exactly the same as the devil's. Come, receive the kingdom of light through Jesus Christ. Number two, truth or deception. Now, if we are premillennialists, we don't believe that Satan is currently in the abyss, chained up, locked in, sealed over. We believe, as I've shown you from scriptures, what the Bible says, which seems to suggest that Satan is very active in this world. I would argue that Satan has been very active in our world in this last year and a half. He's always been active, of course. I would argue that from the perspective of the Christian church, the COVID-19 pandemic has exposed our susceptibility to deception. Why would I say that? There are numerous Christians who have stopped coming to church because of this. It just, just stopped. And they come up with this idea that if they're going to make me wear that, I'm not going. Where in our passage, what we're going to find is that the people in the kingdom of light have been beheaded for the witness of Jesus. And Satan says, you're not going to go to church and wear a mask. Folks, that is deception. It is deception that has divided the church and weakened the church and weakened the faith of many individuals who think that somehow they are justified and right to disobey the scriptures and stop fellowshipping with their fellow believers because of this. That's deception. That is not of God. There are numerous other things we could describe. I have talked with church leaders and pastors. I've talked with the pastor. Uh, some of you would know him. He serves the Lord up on St. Joe's Island. And he told me about the numerous pastors in that little part of the world in northern Ontario in the Sault Ste. Marie area who are packing it in. They just can't take it anymore. Why? So discouraged. People just stop coming to church and don't want to listen to the church leaders and don't want to follow the guidelines that the church leaders have set in place. It's deception. And it's causing great harm to the church of Jesus Christ. Satan is very active. Ladies and gentlemen, Paul said, and we already saw the scripture, we are not unaware of the devil's schemes. Are we? Are we aware of what the devil is trying to do to this church and to every church right now in this time? He is at work to deceive the people of God. Remember this verse? Matthew 24, 24. False messiahs, false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. Yeah, it can happen. Truth or deception. Christians are posting on social media things that they cannot prove are true, but they believe them. They don't know who's the source of them or where it's coming from, but they just post it. Yeah, that sounds right. 
And we've abandoned this idea that all truth is God's truth, primarily the word of God. Be very careful about the deception of the devil. Why would he do it? To divide the church, to weaken the church at a moment in history when we have desperately needed to be the church for this world. Number three, comfort or courage. Do you know why the book of Revelation was written? It was written to believers who were suffering, who were being persecuted, and yes, who were being martyred. It's not that 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 needs to dictate our understanding of the book of Revelation, but it's helpful to understand if we ever can see in, 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 in a writer's explanation, this is why I'm writing, we see that in the Gospel of John, I write this so that you might believe. Or in the first John, the letter of first John, I write this that you might know that you have eternal life. We understand that the book of Revelation was written by the Apostle John to bring encouragement to suffering Christians who were in the heat of the persecution of Nero under the Roman Empire. And how would he encourage them? Well, he'll tell them about these saints in the time of tribulation who've been beheaded. But when Jesus comes, they're going to reign with them. They're coming back to life. One of our problems as North American Christians is that what we want most, what we trust in most, what we hope that Christianity will bring us is comfort. Not courage, comfort. And I would argue that if, if that is what motivates us to believe in a pre-tribulation rapture, as opposed to scriptural reasons, that's the wrong reason. So much of the New Testament teaching on end times is, is right here, it lands right here. Be strong, endure, suffer. And that is what John is attempting to do as he writes about the millennium. You know what? When Jesus comes back, those faithful saints who went all the way to martyrdom, who stood before uh, the judges and the authorities, who said, deny Jesus, they said, I won't. And they cut their heads off. Those people will reign with Jesus. That means that all of us need to arm ourselves with that kind of spiritual courage. And it totally aligns with everything that Jesus taught us about following him when he said, take up your cross. Unless you give up everything you have, you can't be my disciple. That, that fits with what we're seeing here in the millennial kingdom. Those who reign with Jesus are those who suffered with him. Which is exactly what scripture says over and over. The words of Paul here in 2 Timothy, endure hardship. I uh, mentioned this conversation with a pastor a couple of weeks ago. And uh, actually Andreas and I got to meet with him. And uh, Andreas and he had already met that morning. I think Andreas was on his bike and this pastor was jogging in this trail outside of Elmira. <clears throat> we had a little chat about, well, why do you jog? His answer was to train myself to do something that I hate. There's not many people in this room who would do that. I don't do that. 
But he understood that there is a spiritual concept that to follow Jesus means I choose the hard path. I don't expect to escape from suffering. I don't expect to escape from all the tribulation that life has to offer. I am willing and ready by God's grace and only by God's grace, of course, to die for Jesus. I'm looking around. I don't know how many kids are in the room. Not that many. But this reminds me about when I was growing up. I, I grew, I was born in 1975. And, uh, you know, for the next first 10 years of my life, I mean, every Sunday sermon was about the end times and the great tribulation and the rapture and heaven and hell. And I remember I was about four years old and uh, our little church decided to have a Sunday night movie night. And the movie that they showed, and I'm trying to remember the name of it, <clears throat> was one of these 1970 Christian movies that depicted the Great Tribulation and the rapture and like very vividly, right? Like people bleeding and boils and sores and fire. And, and uh, anyone remember that movie? Yeah, Thief in the Night. That sounds right. <clears throat> I was four years old and I'm watching an R-rated movie at church. What is going on? And no one thought, even my parents didn't think, maybe we should have a little talk with Gary and just make sure he's okay. I wasn't. I was scared out of my mind. And you know what? I mentioned kids. Well, maybe it's not just kids. Maybe there's big kids sitting here who find all of this rather unsettling. And can I just remind us that if we are the children of God, Jesus says this to us. All authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go and make disciples. And I am with you always. Remember Jesus, who when mothers with little kids wanted Jesus to pray for their children and bless their children, and the disciples said, no, he doesn't have time for you. Go away, Jesus rebukes not the women but the disciples and says let the little children come always remember this the king who's going to sit on the throne of the millennial kingdom when lots of crazy stuff has gone on and will continue to go on is the king who lets little children sit on his lap what I'm going to say is this just trust him trust your life to Jesus and you will be safe and no matter what happens you will be with the King of kings and Lord of lords. Last thing, priest or spectator. What do we read about these people who are reigning with Jesus? Verse 6, blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. I wonder if as the people of God in the millennium, we, we will be his servants. We, we will be... Uh, the, the go-between between the king and, and, and the nations, which I, I don't even understand. Like, who are these nations and who are these people? I, I don't understand all that. But we will be the servants of God. We, we will stand in the gap between the king and the nations. And folks, that's exactly what we're supposed to be right now. Did you know that? Peter tells us that. Revelation chapter 1 tells us that. That we are already... A royal priesthood. Churches like Wallenstein Bible Chapel were built on this premise of the priesthood of all believers, that all of us are priests. 
All of us are servants of God. All of us are in the ministry. This is not something that is reserved for the millennial kingdom. Millennial kingdom is an extension of what should already be true of us now. That we are the priests of the Most High God. That we are the servants of God. That we stand in this gap between God and humanity. That is our job now. So I ask this last question, priest or spectator, as we think about the fall and we pray for revival and we reestablish our vision for Wallenstein Bible Chapel, as we gather large and as we gather small, this is one of the heart's cry of the elders of this church, is that every member, every attendee of Wallenstein Bible Chapel would understand, number one, Jesus calls you to follow him, to be his child by repentance and faith. And number two, if you are a child of God, you are a priest of God and you have responsibilities to serve God in this church and in our community. These are the lessons of the millennial kingdom. You guys able to sing after all that? I hope so. I think we need to sing. So I'm going to have the music team come and uh, lead us in a song or two, and then we will uh, we'll close in prayer. Lord, this is true. You and you alone are Lord Most High. There is a day coming when we will see you face to face, when we will rule and reign with you. Lord, what we need to remember is that you're Lord right now, that you already sit on a throne that you're already Lord of the nations, that your kingdom has, in a sense, already come. Lord, why is it that we live as though it hasn't? Help us to go from here today praying, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Help us to go from here today, Lord, seeking to make your kingship and your glory known. Give us huge hearts of longing, to see our neighbors, our co-workers know you as king. Lord, we just want to submit our hearts to you now. Pray for your power to be upon us. Give us boldness. Give us an understanding of the truth of your word and help us to live by it. Thank you for the Spirit's voice we've heard today through these songs and through your word. May we live it now, in the days ahead, in Jesus' name, amen.